Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I appreciate all of the comments and feedback that I get in my comment section, and I do review that periodically, but I don't take my questions out of there anymore because I just can't um, guarantee you guys that that's, you know, if you leave me a question there, that that's where I'll get it from. So anyway, I um, wanted to give a little shout out to some recent Patreon supporters who joined up or boosted their support recently. Really, really, really appreciate it. And that is Tammy Hodgson, Holly Baker Beard, uh, Sandy Del Rey, and Mark Young. Thank you very much for your support. All right, guys. So um, I wanted to sort of promote the podcast I put up yesterday with uh, Cyprian Ivanov. He is uh, also one of my patron supporters, actually, but he is an attorney out in D.C., and he is a great guest to have, a lawyer who I talked with and got to vent a little bit, too, about some of my frustrations and difficulties with the legal system and cults and cult prosecution um, based on some of the things that have been happening this last uh, week. We had good and bad. And uh, if you watched my uh, Critical Conversation show or um, the other, you know, content that I've been putting up recently, then we, uh, we you know, we discussed this stuff. So anyway, I uh, hope you guys will check those things out. And let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. And by the way, I hope you guys had a nice Halloween. <laughs> Steve. If everything that Hubbard wrote was unchangeable, how come David Miscavige has, on multiple occasions, issued revisions to what Hubbard wrote? How is that possible if his writings were sacrosanct? The cynical side of me has what I believe to be clearly the answer, and that is another way to scam more money from the public. So is that the answer? Because it sure looks like it. Hey, Steve, thanks for the question. And yes, of course, the answer is that Scientology is a money-making scam. And so anything and everything they're doing is an effort to either uh, milk or bilk more money out of their existing membership or figure out ways to create good public relations or good imaging uh, with the non-Scientologist world so as to try to create friendly, uh, you know, uh, PR ideas about Scientology. They're helping the environment. They're helping people. They're good set of people. They fight for human rights. They do drug abuse counseling or, you know, drug addiction uh, help and study help and, you know, illiteracy help and, and criminal help and all these things that Scientology helps with. All of those are, are PR and uh, membership recruitment lines. And that's what those things are about. So they're either, you know, that, that's, that's basically what's, what's going on there. Now, I thought I'd answer this question also and comment on why do people fall for it? How is it that David Miscavige can, uh, you know, run Scientology now? And he's run it for a long time. I mean, let's keep that in mind that Miscavige has basically taken over the, the idea of source, in Scientology, right? L. Ron Hubbard was the source, and he called himself that with a capital S, I am source, and uh, and made a big deal out of it. And he also wrote in Mary's policy letters, most especially keeping Scientology working, that Scientology was a complete body of work. It was an integrated whole that worked. It wasn't a perfect system, but it was a workable system, Hubbard said. And he claimed that there are very few workable systems in the world. Well, Hubbard was full of shit on that. There are lots of things that work in this world. 
not just Scientology, but that was Hubbard's way, as he was always trying to position Scientology as senior to everything else going on in the world or even the universe. And that's a necessary part of the, uh, you know, of, of, of the propaganda. You have to convince people that what they're doing is super, super important. Now, nobody imagined that L. Ron Hubbard uh, was anything more than a, a, a guy or a man. He's not a god in Scientology, and he's not beyond reproach or mistake. It's not that anybody believes Hubbard never made a mistake or that he didn't have issues or problems of his own. It's, but they don't bring him down to the level of you and me. I mean, he's not a regular Joe guy. Hubbard is this, you know, considered this genius researcher and philosopher and, and, and all of that by Scientologists. Um, but where, where I'm going with this business of he's not infallible and that mistakes could have been made over the years is that um, this opens the door to possibilities of revising or changing or modifying or correcting. And that's probably the word that is actually more appropriate for how this is positioned with Scientologists is that Miscavige has to correct errors that were made along the way, not by Hubbard in his writings or research, but in how that research or how those writings were interpreted, translated, um, dictated, uh, or sorry, transcribed from dictation, because almost all of Hubbard's uh, books I think except for Dianetics, almost every one of Hubbard's books were dictated uh, on tape and then transcribed and uh, from Science of Survival forward. And so Miscavige has figured out a way to keep Hubbard blameless for mistakes, errors, problems, and still give an out, still give a reasonable explanation that Scientologists are more than happy to accept that the alterations or changes through the years that happened with Scientology's work that made it unworkable or presented problems with it or made it difficult to understand was because of these transcriptionists or, or secretaries or editors, copy editors. And, um, and so this is how Scientologists buy into this. Now, the fact of the matter is that that is actually true. You know, alterations do happen because of transcription errors and copy editors changing things over the years. And that's, you know, it's not all just a lie. I mean, there were things about the dictated, transcribed books like Science of Survival where they were very hard to read. And admittedly so, they are easier to read now that you know, all the semicolons and commas and words and everything were changed. Now, I'm not saying that that Miscavige isn't lying or that Miscavige isn't taking advantage of Scientologists. Like I said at the beginning of this whole thing, it's a money-making scam, and that's what Scientology is all about. But there were the, the reason I'm giving a little bit of credibility to Miscavige's claims about how there were errors along the way that needed to be fixed is because that kind of thing happened all the time when Hubbard himself was still around. And in fact, in 1976, I think it was, 76 or 78, there was a, a, a bulletin called Tech Correction Roundup, where Hubbard had discovered that people had been, you know, changing or altering things, or he scapegoated them. <laughs> you know, he didn't actually mess it up, but he was more than happy to scapegoat some people to blame them for the problems. 
and a whole revision, massive revision of a number of different things across Scientology was, was done. And the other thing about the history of Scientology you need to know that, that lends credibility to this whole idea of actual errors and changes made that, that nobody really wanted is that there were periods of time where other people were able to write issues and put their name to it. And these were get approved through Hubbard, but they weren't Hubbard's writing, but they were issued as bulletins or policy letters. Now, those happened officially as HCO, official Hubbard Communications Office bulletins and policy letters. For example, Mary Sue wrote policies or other crew on this in the Sea Org wrote policies, and some of those ended up with L. Ron Hubbard's name on it, as though he had written it. And those had to be, sometimes those would get reviewed, people would go, oh my God, that's not Ron, and they would get canceled or, or, or you know, knocked out or taken out or revised the way, the way Hubbard wanted it. Other issue types were put out, like board policy letters and board technical bulletins. Uh, this, these aren't around anymore. But in the 70s, these were a thing, and they were kind of a big thing. And the issues were were printed on cream-colored paper rather than white paper to indicate that you were reading something that was technical or you were reading some policy for the church, but it wasn't written by Ron, but it was still had the force of policy or a tech that had been written by Ron. So these were issued as board technical bulletins as in board of directors of the Church of Scientology, whoever those people were, that was the authority under which these bulletins and, and policy letters were issued. So um, a lot of those, in fact, almost all of them, if they weren't canceled on review after a few years, they were converted in the 1980s to official Hubbard-signed bulletins or policy letters. And, and it wasn't Hubbard's work. It was somebody else's work, but they just changed it and put Hubbard's name on it and revised it so that it would all be purely on source, you see, is the idea here. And so they, they blatantly took things that had not been written by Hubbard at all, and they put Hubbard's name on it, issued it under the same heading and the same issue type that Hubbard's that Hubbard-only writings are supposed to be issued under, Okay. And um, anyway, and so it's kind of a, a maze of trying to, you know, you'd have to really have a deep understanding or access to the whole revision history of all the issues that have been written in Scientology. And there are thousands of them in order to know which ones were actually L. Ron Hubbard's versus which were somebody else's that just had Hubbard's name put on it. And this has been a thing that's been going on for 50, you know, the 50 years that, that it was around that these things were being issued while Hubbard was still alive. Uh, well, sorry, I guess I should say 36 years. Hubbard died in 86. So, yeah, 36 years. Okay. Um, so, there's a, so, in other words, the reality of this situation is that it's a mess. And you really don't know from one issue or bulletin to the next whether it's actually L. Ron Hubbard or not. But everything I'm telling you is stuff that I learned not by reading L. Ron Hubbard and him telling me all this, but just through the experience of having been a staff member and Sea Org member who kept their eyes open and, and their ears open, and I was very interested in um, in this stuff and in, in learning about this and how issues happen. And I 
happened to, just as more added color for you guys and more information about my Scientology past, I, you know, all these little things pop up and I get to tell you guys about them that I've, that I've forgotten about. I did proofreading for material that was issued in 19, um, in, the, in the late 1980s. When this first round of these revisions were happening, uh, that I, or one of the rounds, I should say, not the first round, but one of these rounds were, were occurring after Hubbard died. So Hubbard died, they went through the entire library, all the books, all the issues, all the everything, and they changed and converted over a bunch to, you know, the, the official types, like I said. And they canceled all of the board technical bulletins and all the board policy letters as off-source. Those weren't correct. They were not L. Ron Hubbard's words. Well, you know, a lot of things have been issued under L. Ron, with L. Ron Hubbard's name on them that were not L. Ron Hubbard's words. I got a chance to sort of first peek behind the curtain on all of this and start seeing and learning how this process works of revisions to the, 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 the Scientology works um, because I was doing proofreading. I was down in for training in Los Angeles, and they were revising some of these materials, and they needed proofreaders. And so I did that, and it was fun. It was fun to sit there and proofread the, the material and learn how to do that um, and learn the copy editor notations and things like that. Um, but it was also eye-opening to see how every comma, every word that does get changed has to go through this full approval process. There's a number of people who have to look at it all the way up to the top, of course, through the office of RTC. So, and at this point, that's pretty much Miscavige. Um, so anyway, just kind of interesting. Uh, and thanks for the question, Steve. I hope that that gives you some insight into why you know the the sort of the some of the history of of the of the issues and how that all works, which your question prompted me to think about. Um, of course, Scientologists buy into all of this because of all the reasons we've already you know gone over ad nauseum about cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning and all of the confirmation bias. So uh, anyway, that's how that works. Coffee before flamethrower. In Jesse Prince's book, Expert Witness. He talks about David Miscavige and others piloting the first OT-8 on the Freewinds and it being a major flap. When Jesse Prince took a look at the materials, it said everything before that point was what the person made up. To stop making it up, and that Hubbard claimed to be Satan, and that Scientology is de-identified satanic ritualistic practices. One couple left the ship in search of an exorcist. Another woman on the ship thought she was a World War II Japanese kamikaze plane and was making airplane noises as she repeatedly crashed her head into the ship. Similar comments were made by Jamie DeWolf at a Flag Down event in Clearwater in 2014, where he read aloud a manuscript from his grandfather talking extensively about the satanic origins of Scientology. All the TV shows, various YouTube channels, and websites describing the abuses of Scientology seem to be describing characteristics or experiences of the outcomes of Scientology, while these two items hint that Hubbard thought it to be a foundational church doctrine. Could you expand on this topic? All right, thanks for the question. Um, I actually have expanded on the OTO, Occult Origins of Scientology, in a couple of podcasts I did with a guy who was and is a member of the OTO now and knew all about its history. And we talked in quite some detail about this. 
So I can't summate all of that here, but I will answer your question by saying that um, L. Ron Hubbard came, drew from, I guess I could say, a complex body of information, including theosophy, theology, Christian science, you know, Madame Blavatsky's work, um, Aleister Crowley's work with the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and Thelema, which is uh, Crowley's system, and, 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 and then lots of other stuff too, right? Science, I mean, he read from um, Buckminster Fuller's work. He drew some Scientology principles from that, like the fact that the universe is based on two, the principle of two things, not one. That for everything there is an opposite thing, or a, or or it's uh, you know a separate, a different opposite thing to that, and uh, you know and the dichotomies and the pluses and minuses, and this is you know this is how the universe works, um, and and lots of other places. Okay, so so Scientology is sourced by in many different vats or pools or or places. <laughs> But the occult and Aleister Crowley's work and uh, Hubbard's exposure to that through his uh, work in the OTO with Jack Parsons in the mid-40s was, uh, was quite important. And a lot of, we see in the Scientology bridge, in the cross, and a lot of the symbology and iconography and the levels of Scientology. I mean, this goes back to even Freemasonry and, you know, ancient, you know, um, fraternal orders and stuff like that. So so there's a long tradition of stuff that Hubbard's just kind of pulling from whatever, you know, struck his fancy. Or remember, lots and lots of other people over the years contributed to Scientology too. And Hubbard just took it and, and incorporated it and, and made it as though he was the only one coming up with all these ideas. Excuse me. Um, so as far as the satanic, um, you know, contributions or the, you know, the black magic or thalema or all of that, you know, Satanism or satanic, it's, it's a, it's, I consider it a little bit of a misnomer. Hubbard wasn't worshiping Satan and he wasn't into satanic rituals as such. He was into trying to figure out how to empower himself. Hubbard was about personal power. He was a megalomaniac, and uh, that doesn't particularly get talked about a whole lot compared to the religious and perverted stuff that he would get up to or had ideas about. But um, but let's remember, this was about power and influence as well as money, and Hubbard was big on that. And Thelema and, and Crowley's work was about um, building up your spiritual potential or ability and using magic or rituals or, you know, these these various uh, rites to accomplish that. But, you know, behind the rites and rituals, it wasn't just say the right words and do the right things and, and crazy things will happen. It's that there was a guardian spirit and that there is um, this whole spiritual aspect to life. And that you can tap into this and and uh, and that the will or the intention of the being is what manifests or creates reality. That's basically if you're going to really bring it down to something, it's it's that concept. And Hubbard wanted to build and construct his own version of reality where he was in charge. He was the master. He was dominant over other people. He could get any woman he ever wanted. He could dominate the wills of other men. These were things he wrote. This is what he wanted to do. 
Now, he didn't write it in the Scientology scriptures. He wrote it before all that in his uh, sort of self-hypnosis sessions or, um, you know, these, these pages and pages of writings of his that we call the affirmations. And if you haven't seen those affirmations, you should definitely look them up. They are featured in my book. I have a um, appendix that lists it all, that, that, that writes it all down. There's a Wikipedia page about it with some choice quotes from the affirmations. And uh, they're, they're really quite something. And they are the biggest or, you know, most, um, I guess, the, the, the deepest or most intimate look into Hubbard's soul <laughs> that we have is actually those those affirmations and various quotes and statements he made over the years. So anyway, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of where, what Hubbard was trying to do, he was trying to figure out how to self-empower and dominate other people. And he thought that Thelema and the OTO and those rituals would accomplish that. They didn't. He then continued forward, used hypnotism, came up with Dianetics, realized that was a way he could control other people, but also possibly be a way of fixing his own problems. You see, there's a, I mean, when I said Hubbard, you know, I've always said, uh, maintain that Hubbard was a complex guy. There was a lot going on. There's a lot of levels to Hubbard's intentions and, and drives and motivations to, to, to formulate Dianetics and Scientology. Making money was definitely one of those things, dominating other people, but also fixing himself because he knew, again, according to his own affirmations and writings, that he was not in a good way. And when you see him begging the VA for money and trying to, you know, come up with any way possible to convince people that he was, you know, screwed up, well, he was screwed up and he did have problems and he uh, didn't know how to solve those problems. So he thought maybe this system might be a way of accomplishing that too. So, you know, kind of kind of weird delusory view uh, on lots of levels. And that's that's L. Ron Hubbard for you. So I, I, I don't know. I hope that expansion on that is what you were looking for, or at least gave you some um, some more information to, to think about on that. Cyprian Ivanov. Does Scientology have any measures to evaluate the success of previous efforts? How do they study their own history? Okay, good question. And uh, an opportunity for me to talk about the data files. All right, so I don't know that I've talked about this uh, ever, or maybe maybe a couple of times, but in, in Scientology, in the Sea Org, you have a centralized computer system, which is basically a great big database a document indexing system. It's all been computerized. It used to be done and is still done also parallel with the computer system as you have uh, files, okay, file folders that are kept in file cabinets uh, for every single Scientology organization that is managed by Scientology, by, my, by Scientology management, which is the Sea Org. You have um, folders being kept for every month. And information, all the information from KRs to reports to statistics to um, uh, certificates to, uh, let's see, uh, local information, the org's magazine, everything that is coming that the org is basically producing in terms of paperwork or records, copies of this stuff are being sent to management. Now, not every single invoice or every single little thing, but a lot. 
a lot. And in fact, if you wanted to, from a management position, you could get computer copies of all the invoices and information coming out of any individual Church of Scientology. So, for example, I, I was management for the Western United States. So the data files that we had covered all of the 34 organizations that were that I managed or helped manage in the Western United States, from Hawaii to Twin Cities to Kansas City to Austin and everything in between. And, um, and those data files were used by us managers routinely to find out what was going on in the orgs at the ground level. You could see the reports, you could see the statistics, you could get a picture of what was going on in that organization for any given time period. And these folders, I said, like I said, were kept every month. So you could open up the file cabinet, pull out the data files for Seattle for March. And you open it up, and there's March, and there's a, and there's the org magazine, and there's KRs, and there's statistics, all that stuff. And the statistics basically tell you what's going on in the organization in terms of its production across the boards. And the data tells you why it's happening, what's going on, right? Or at least you hope it will. Some organizations don't send tons and tons of information, and they had pretty flimsy little data files. Other organizations where, say, there were Sea Org members on the ground doing their job as network people, keeping their, you know, being the eyes and ears of management, those guys send up tons of reports and go around and collect the information that's necessary for the data files for management so we could manage the orgs, right? So that's, the, that's this little system. These eyes and ears are down there on the ground feeding us information we use that information to try to explain the statistics of the org and manage it so that the statistics will rise. That's that's basically the, the way the management system is supposed to kind of work. There's a lot more details, of course, in how to do the management, what you how you read the statistics and stuff like that. And as a note, by the way, uh, learning statistics for real now <laughs> in, in my university studies um, I'm having to, I mean, I'm starting at square zero on that and just kind of building up a knowledge base of, of what are statistics and how does this work? And, um, and I really, I, I realized that um, the only thing in common with statistics as they are taught in college and used in the rig wide world and the statistics that are done in Scientology, pretty much the only thing that is, that is common between these two things is the word statistics because what goes on in Scientology is just numbers on a graph and you really, it's so simple, Simon. It's just down to judging, did the line go up, stay even, or go down? And if it did that, or is the graph trending up level or down over, over a period of time? That's as complicated a question as you're ever going to have about the statistics in Scientology, okay? They don't run the numbers through statistical models and analysis. And I mean, there's so much information, raw data that they have in management um, that they don't do anything with. They don't utilize it. They don't do um, analyses that they could do of, you know, distributions of Scientologists or, or services and how are these services panning out? what's successful, what's not. The way they figure those things out is much more primitive. It's much cruder.
people who work in the Sea Org don't apply uh, college level, you know, WOG tech to uh, to statistics or to running Scientology organizations. And of course, that's one of the reasons why Scientology organizations are so horribly un you know unviable. Don't don't make money. Don't don't grow. Don't expand because um, they just don't know what they're doing. You know, once I started learning some statistical stuff, and I barely got my toe in the in the pool. I mean, I'm really a, a, a neophyte when it comes to actual statistical analysis. I, I'm just trying to learn enough to 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 figure it out for you know research methods and papers and stuff I'm going to have to do. And uh, and I'm already like, man, this is complicated stuff. Nobody, even if they come into Scientology or the Sea Org with a background in that stuff, they they don't use it in managing Scientology organizations. Um, instead, what they do is they use these this data file system. And Hubbard described this whole system as uh, the multiple viewpoint system. That's what it's called. Uh, meaning that you are getting all these reports and information into these file folders from multiple points of view. Um, the executive director's reports, the supervisor's reports, the auditors, the guy out on the selling the books on the street. All these staff members are supposed to be writing reports every single week and sending them up to management. How'd they do? How are their statistics? What difficulties did they run into? What was successful? How are they doing? Anything I've, that management would want to know about? These are the kind of questions that are asked in the weekly reports. And every staff member of every single organization is expected to do a weekly report, ship it up to management. Um, all the KRs that get written that week, you know, other kinds of reports that get written, finance reports that get printed out by the computer system. All this stuff goes into these data files, and so you have multiple viewpoints feeding it. And the idea with this is that by opening the folder and going through the reports, you're not just getting data, you're getting data from multiple sources. And so you end up with this kind of, you know, after a few hours of reading through these reports and looking at the statistics and analyzing where the organization's at, you get a pretty interesting and sometimes accurate view of what's going on there. Um, that's not really how to manage an organization for viability on a long-term basis, though. But that's how Scientology does it. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll describe this in enough detail here in, in response to your question, Cyprian, that people can actually get some concept of why is it that management of Scientology organizations is so poor, so is just so bad? And the system itself is a bad system of management, and that's why. But it does provide information and data and statistics, and it, and it could possibly be modified to be a useful system. But the other thing, of course, about the system is it's always being cut off at the knees because of various factions that exist within this management structure who actually do battle with one another, you know, and the multiplicity of senior people issuing orders to the managers. So they have, you know, crazy different priorities on a day-to-day -day basis. There's no calm, long-term, okay, let's just step back, look at this picture and, you know, issue some orders that are going to sensibly get this organization on the rails. <laughs> None of what I just said, that, that, that's not how it's done, right? It's frantic, it's crazy, it's, it's, uh, 
it's phone calls, it's telexes, it's demands, it's quotas, it's, you know. So, so you have the data with which you could make a better picture, but they don't utilize it that way, if, if I'm coming across properly here. I, I hope I am. Sometimes I've got all this information in my head and I, I'm trying to summate it in a way that you guys will get. And I don't know if I'm doing a good job on this one, but I hope I've given a little bit of a picture of what it's like to be a manager in the Sea Org and how, in response to your question here, they study their own history and evaluate their own successes. The other thing I'll say on this one, Cyprian, is also check out my podcasts regarding the data series, because you're going to want to know about that, too, if you really want to understand how the statistics and the data are utilized to evaluate the organization and come up with a plan of attack to, to, to make it better. That is the data series, and that's a whole nother subject, uh, a sub-subject of Scientology that's a, that's a kind of a difficult one to, to get your head around, but, um, but you might... You might um, you know, you might find it cool. All right, there you go. Bob, Bob, I heard this saying as a Sea Org member and Scientologist for years concerning inadequacies of clears. I'm only clear on the first dynamic, you know. It's interesting. It had been the go-to excuse for any quote-unquote human behavior that betrays the definitions of clear and pre-OTs. It drew a lot of cognitive dissonance and unease for me as I was born to two clear parents, and that was used to justify anything suboptimal with their behavior. It's only in my 30s when I decided to leave Scientology and decompress, I heard the line again and I had an internal brain explosion. What does that even mean? I don't even know where it's from and if it is from Hubbard. Okay, Bob, cool. Um, so I'm only clear on the first dynamic. And this actually is, well, it's kind of reflected right on the grade chart. So it is a thing that comes from Hubbard. There's no question about that. And Hubbard stressed in a few places that a clear is in danger, is actually needs to get onto and up through the OT levels, especially through OT3, as quickly as possible because a clear is at risk. What are they at risk of? The body thetans, right? And all the crap that's sitting there that's just like waiting to pounce on the guy now that he has achieved the state of clear, okay? So clear is this wonderful state of being that, that, that Dianetics first promised and Scientology still to this day delivers on where you're supposed to be in a state of... Um, no longer at the effect of or no longer um, plagued by or traumatized by past incidents of pain and trauma and um, subconscious commands that are inflicted on you by this thing called the reactive mind that you carry around with you. It's part of your mind. So you have these, you know, the, all these traumatic episodes that you've carried around for millions, billions, trillions of years, and they have a, you know, non-optimum effect on you. Well, you go clear, though it's all gone, supposedly, right? And with all that gone, you personally, as a Thetan, just you, your, your, your first dynamic, right? Just you, the self. You don't have a reactive mind anymore, okay? It's gone. And I used to go crazy trying to figure out myself 
what it meant to be clear on all the dynamics. Okay, this is another description that's used internally in Scientology to describe these states. So clear is a first dynamic activity. It's self. Um, going OT is clearing the rest of your dynamics. And your dynamics are basically your spheres of operation in your life, okay? The spheres of influence that you have, starting with yourself first, family, sex, children, that's second dynamic. Groups you're part of, that's the third dynamic. Mankind as a whole, that's the fourth dynamic. You see it's this concentric circle concept of ever-growing expansion and responsibility and influence. And, um, and you always are operating on the eight dynamics all the way out to infinity and God. You're always aware of and operating on all eight dynamics to, to one degree or another. But you're trying to go full OT. That means you're trying to clear all the stress and trauma and horrible stuff across all eight of the dynamics. And... When, you know, you couldn't talk in Scientology about body thetans because it's all confidential. But all those body thetans have their own reactive mind. And this is why people at the lower levels of Scientology, the confidentiality thing is why you can't figure out what this statement means. You know, you're only clear on the first dynamic. Well, how do I go clear on the second dynamic or the third dynamic or the fourth dynamic? Well, you got to get rid of all these body thetans because their reactive minds are impinging on them as spiritual entities, but it's also impinging on you because you're carrying them around with you and they talk to you and they influence you and they can their pictures look like your pictures, your mental image pictures. And so you confuse your thoughts for their thoughts, their engrams, their moments of stress and trauma with yours. It's all a big jumbled mess. So going clear, getting up to that level, well, now you're okay. You don't have that reactive mind anymore, but you've got thousands of these body thetans stuck on you, and they have reactive minds. And you are surrounded by people in the environment around you who have reactive minds. And all collectively, all those reactive minds are the, the cause, according to Hubbard, of war, insanity, illiteracy, crime, all of it. Every bad thing that's going on in the world is due to this collection of reactive minds. And that's the first thing that's supposed to be handled in Scientology is get everybody up to clear, but you got to get to the OT levels to start telepathically dealing with all these body thetans, okay? And that's why it's only clear on the first dynamic. At least that's one explanation for it. And it's the one I've come up with uh, after I've gone through all the OT level material and tried to figure out what's all this is all this crap is about. So I hope that is uh, is illuminating or helpful for you. There you go. Our test for echo. I was rewatching the interview you did with your mom, and I was am wondering if your family knew when you were sent to the RPF, and what did they think about your situation? Given how it seems like your mom had quietly left the church and the conditions of the RPF. It makes me wonder if they knew you had been sent there, and if they did, were they upset and worried about both your physical and mental safety while you were there? Uh, yes, I did have to contact both my mom and dad as part of the process of starting the RPF in order to let them know that I was not going to be in touch with them a whole lot while I was doing the program. 
Um, I think I might have told them that it was going to be, you know, like a year or something. I wasn't really sure how long I was going to be there when I first started. The idea is it's supposed to be a six-month program, but that's just total horseshit. Nobody completes that program in six months. Nobody even completes it in a year. And I think I know one person or one pair of people who, excuse me, got managed to complete it, I think, in two and a half years. And that was the shortest I'd ever seen anybody on that program where they actually did the program. Um, there were people who came and left faster than that, either through leaving the Sea Org or through getting... Um, uh, what's the word for that? Reprieved. Yeah, if they got a reprieve, then they got, you know, they were back in the Sea Org and they were okay. So, uh, or canceled. Sometimes a person's RPF assignment would be canceled, where it just doesn't, it's, it's as though it never happened. It was an injustice that shouldn't have occurred. Very rare, but I did see it happen, I think actually once in terms of rare. I think I saw one RPF cancellation. And I saw one, two, I think I saw two people get reprieved while I was there, which basically means you're, you know, they review it and they go, eh, we probably shouldn't have put you there. Okay, but besides all that, um, my own personal situation was that, yeah, my my parents were worried, but it, you know, I'd already been in the Sea Org for years. In fact, I think over about, about a decade at that point. And, um, and they, there wasn't really, you know, much of a conversation about it. And I don't know that they really understood what it was I was doing. I mean, I told them, you know, the 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 shore story, the the PR line about the RPF is it's a rehabilitation program, and it's something I'll be doing, you know, with full dedication and and full effort on that. And I and it's against the rules for me to be making phone calls or writing letters to people outside the RPF. Uh, if you want to write to me, of course you can, and I can then respond to you. I did. I think I told them that because that was part of the rules. But I basically was calling them to let them know that we were going to be out of touch for a while. That was really the point of the call. Uh, because up until that point, I had been um, in fairly, you know, I, I don't want to say fairly regular because that's just not true. Probably every couple months, I would call my mom. And it more, much more infrequently, I would contact my dad. Um, but after, you know, once you're on the RPF, all of that is over. So, so that's, that's kind of how that went. And, um, you know, when I told them after the fact, you know, in that interview with my mom, for example, and other places, you know, they, they were much more disturbed after they learned all the details of it. And uh, and details I could never share with them or tell them about when I was doing it or when I was going to go to it when I was a Sea Org member. You just don't talk about that stuff, period. You do not want to give. As a, the, the, the basic rule as a Sea Org member is you do not want to give anybody outside the Sea Org any reason to be concerned about you, to be upset about your situation or your physical or mental state or your living conditions or, you know, the food, the money, the clothes, none of it. You're not supposed to talk about any of that stuff. And you really clamp it down. And they are very serious about that. And they don't want Sea Org members eliciting sympathy or support from outside the Sea Org because that is what they call an external influence. And that external influence, you know, that external to the Sea Org, in other words, 
is going to pull you out of the Sea Org, is going to distract you, is going to make you think about things outside the Sea Org, and you don't want any of that. And this is pretty overt self-policing. It, it, it really is. And it's um, amazing to me. It really is amazing to me right now as I sit here that I ever agreed with that. I mean, my headspace now is so different from when I was a Sea Org member, where I thought that that was not only, um, you know, something I would agree to, but that I thought it was necessary, that I was really in a headspace where I thought, yeah, I can't tell them about this stuff because they're going to get a bad image of it, and then they're going to think bad things. And I never thought any deeper than that. It was just about maintaining public image at the expense of my own sanity almost. I mean, it was that crazy. That was that dedicated to it. So, um, so like I said, a little hard for me to still think that way, but that is, uh, that's the headspace. And that's why I was willing to say those things to my mom and dad and tell them, look, it's okay. It's fine. I'm, I'm going to do this. I know that it's not going to be easy. I know it's not, you know, uh, I know it's a little upsetting for you, mom, that I'm not going to be talking to you for a while, but it's, I, I really screwed up, and it's very important that I do this program. I can't really get into the specifics of why, but I, I need to do this, and, and it's, it's very important. So I just need your support and backing in, in doing it. And that's pretty much how I, how I remember communicating to her about it. There you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Adria Vici Haloub. Do you think there are any high-level people who have died on Scientology property and have not been reported, such as Heber Gentsch? Yeah, I actually wonder about Heber, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that it would be very easy for other people to have died there who have grown, uh, you know, to, into their senior years as Sea Org members, and we just don't have any transparency or hear from them at all. And um, I don't really know what else to say about that. It's, it's certainly possible, you know. I mean, hell, they could be all dead for all we know. We wouldn't know. There's no real way for us to find out. And that's pretty sad. Tyler, what would a Sea Org reality show be like? Pure insanity. <laughs> or, reversely, so crafted and scripted that it would look like Scientology TV. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably where you're going to get the closest thing to what a Scientology reality TV would look like. Sean, what would happen if I were to give the clear cognition in one of my first auditing sessions? Could I start the OT levels and skip doing the bridge? It would depend a little bit on whether the people who were auditing you or supervising your case progress actually knew what the clear cognition is because not everybody does. It's a it's confidential and it's a closely held secret within Scientology. Um, not as closely held as the whole Xenu body fate and stuff, but but up there, it's confidential. So um, your run-of-the-mill standard Scientology auditor, Sea Org member, staff member, they don't know the clear cognition. You have to get trained on it. So Odds are, if you were to go into a session and start talking about the clear cognition, they'd be like, okay, that's great. You know, they might end the session because it sounds like you've had a really big win and stuff. Oh, wow, I don't have to operate with my react mind anymore. I've just been making it up. You know, wow. Okay, great. Thank you for that. That's wonderful, writing it all down, you know, on the worksheets. 
Uh, good. Well, let's go ahead and end the session, you know, and they might end off uh, thinking you're on a big win, but they're, they might not necessarily recognize that you've gone clear. But let's say they do. You're going to get what's called a clear certainty rundown. You're going to have to pay for that. And you're going to have to go to an org that has the trained people to do it. Those are the people who know what the clear cog is. And um, and you're gonna and then you're gonna verify your state of clear. And what you're gonna have to show them, by the way, at least according to the last things I knew, according to David Miscavige's uh, rules and, and and dictations on this, is you have to have had Dianetic auditing at some point, either in a past life or in this lifetime. You must have had uh, Dianetics because that's what makes clears. Scientology auditing does not. So um, anyway. It's all, all kind of stuff and nonsense, but that's what you would be told. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. I forgot to say at the top of the show that um, patron supporters get their questions put at the top of my question queue. So if you are if you really have a question that you really need me to answer right away, then um, that's how to do it. And <laughs> now, of course, you can also, uh, you know, always email me and stuff. And sometimes I, I get uh, questions that are not meant for the show. But um, seriously, frankly, my time is so limited now that I don't have time for long, you know, email conversations. Um, not trying to discourage anybody from, from emailing me if you need to talk to me. But, um, but if you want your question answered, that's, where the, that's how the queue works. And I've had some questions in the queue for a really long time because um, I get a lot of questions from my patrons and they get bumped up to the top. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure you guys knew about that. Uh, thank you very much for watching, for inviting me into your home this week. I hope you've had a good Halloween weekend and that it was spooky and, and hopefully uh, some candy was distributed somehow or another safely with masks. But I hope it happened for you guys. And, um, and remember that uh, it's a kind of a crazy time right now. So remember to take breaks, keep off social media as much as possible. Um, you know, avoid long uh, news sessions, you know, it's, it's, uh, the world's pretty crazy place and, um, social media and the news are trying really, really hard to make it seem 20 times worse than it already is. So keep that in mind and remember the virtual world is not the real world. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.